0: The automated Podcast. Well, welcome to the 20th episode of The Automated Podcast, where, of course, we explore the impact of technology on jobs. And as always, I'm Mark Verbenkov. So I wanted to start off today with a little bit of an older idea from a few months ago, but one that I only came across recently and I haven't really mentioned on the podcast yet. So, British startup Accentia and Japanese pharmaceutical firm Suimoto have managed to use an AI to have the first ever non-human developed drug and is already in phase one clinical human trials. So, the drug is apparently used to treat patients who have obsessive compulsive disorder. So, even though this was pretty big news, um, this week an AI-supported scientist to discover an extremely potent antibiotic that can combat E. coli. So I think that even though each of these ideas merit substantial time to look into, they really only lead to a point that I think is even more interesting, and that this is that there is now an attempt to get another AI by the name of uh, Davis AI as the inventor on a patent for a food container and a warning light. So this is an absolute first as well and has opened quite a debate within patent offices worldwide. It also might signal one of the first steps in a shift towards accepting AI with human-like benefits, which I think is the important thing that kind of connects all three of these uh, little news articles. But moving along to the second thing that we wanted to talk about today, it's kind of a heartwarming story out of Japan. So there's a cafe that's given the opportunity to physically disabled individuals to work and help customers by both controlling as well as communicating through uh, sophisticated robot waiters. So in an interview, Uh, One of these remote robot controllers explained that he feels a sense of uh, increased self-value knowing that he can help others and contribute to the functioning of this new cafe. So you can also kind of consider this within the trend of uh, cochlear as well as eye implants that enable hearing and sight. As part of a growing group of other technologies that enable those with physical issues to become augmented through those technologies, facilitating a greater quality of life. So on a little bit of a lighter note, the world's first VR esports arena uh, opened in the Netherlands just a few days ago. So this enables you to play a VR game with your entire body rather than with just a few hand controllers, which would increase the immersive aspect of VR substantially. So if one of the top eSports tournaments was able to bring in more viewers than those tuning into the Super Bowl, I think it's really likely that full-body VR games are set to grow quite quickly over the next few years. And the kind of final news point, uh, thanks to Giel for sharing an article that discusses this, but there is a group of students and their teacher as well in the Netherlands who have implanted chips in their hands, enabling them to uh, do a number of things, such as uh, paying for groceries, uh, opening their lockers, and maybe in the future, or hopefully in the future, they're saying, to even log into their social media. So these students also state that they believe in 15 years, everyone will be using an implanted hand chip. But this, I think, actually brings up an interesting point. So I've discussed before that China and some parts of America are already using facial recognition technology that enables many of these actions. And I would think that people would be a little bit more willing to look into a camera rather than having a microchip surgically implanted in their hand. Even if the technology is state-of-the-art however this fits perfectly with an idea in this month's blog post which will come out next week where i look at the idea of exponential technological growth and briefly discuss technological leapfrogging and of course if you're interested you can find the posts on the website automatedpodcast.org So today's episode is actually one of the first topics that was focused on during my master's program. So it's nice to go back and explore some of the ideas I was studying some years ago. So the two ideas we'll look at are those of technological determinism and social determinism, usually seen at odds with each other. So the first perspective is simply that technology is a driving force of society and that its development is pre-wired and determines the way that we live. Social determinism, on the other hand, sees technology as a neutral tool in the hands of human beings, and it is human desire that molds and directs technological change. So perhaps before going into this, you can already start thinking if you believe one is more correct than the other. But uh, don't worry, I won't go into the research and the readings of my masters, but rather focus on the more interesting idea through two main examples one which I'm sure many people have heard of, and the other I think is a little bit less well-known. So my goal with doing this is really to help emphasize one of the more hopeful ideas of the podcast that I don't think I've given enough attention to in the episodes uh, so far, but I can explain that uh, near the end of this episode. So why don't we jump into the first case here. So I think that with the continuous rise and publicity of Elon Musk, and of course Tesla's electronic, uh, autonomous vehicles, it's only really fitting to talk about the electric car. So electric cars seem to generally be thought of as something new and exciting, a technology that kind of overrides the dominant transportation technology, which now many of us I think see as a generator of needless pollution as well as noise. However, electric vehicles actually have been around for much more than 100 years, and in fact, around the turn of the 20th century, they were the preferred mode of modern transportation. So there were actually steam-powered vehicles that could take up to 45 minutes to start, as well as gasoline vehicles, but they required a hand crank and came with, uh, of course, the unpleasant odor. Um, With the growing number of electricity grids, though, recharging also became less of a problem for the electric vehicles, and they even broke the 100 kilometer per hour record for the very first time. So, however, even with their apparent lead, improvements in refueling and production saw the gasoline-powered car uh, decrease in cost and, of course, therefore grow in desirability. And kind of the final nail in the coffin was uh, something called an electric starter that developed in 1912 that replaced the physically demanding hand crank starting method for the gas-powered vehicles. So this fits into what we call the deterministic outlook. Technological innovations led to the fixed outcome of gas-powered vehicles dominating our transportation mode for over 100 years. However, the re-emergence of electric vehicles tells a little bit of a different story. So, social and cultural pressures today, mostly fueled by the environmental movements pushed to reduce CO2 emissions, is strongly forcing the technological development of electric vehicles, like the well-known models uh, from Tesla Motors. So, with this in mind, we can move on to the second case, which looks at a more fundamental technology, that of energy generation from nuclear reactors. So perhaps no technology has been viewed as more controversial throughout the entire 20th and early 21st century as nuclear energy. Maybe you've also seen the Netflix uh, three-part documentary Inside Bill's Brain and the third generation nuclear reactor that was built to use nuclear waste as fuel. If you have, you may have come away with a different perspective on nuclear energy technology. So my hope with what I'm about to present is that we can see that nuclear technology did not develop along a linear path, but was also strongly influenced by certain institutions, people, and mentalities. So the goal here isn't really to push nuclear energy, but rather to see that um, social determinism has a large part to play in this story as well. So, nuclear plants across the globe use uranium as their main fuel source. The technical details are well beyond the scope of this episode, but to give a brief idea, uh, immensely pressurized water is used to cool the solid fuel contained within those uh, uranium rods. But due to the strong radiation and pressures, the fuel rods themselves become physically worn, which necessitates replacement after only about 5% of the energy of their uranium has been used. So these spent rods contain one of the main elements needed to make nuclear weapons, plutonium-239, as well as many other radioactive elements, which we typically deem as nuclear waste. So this waste is both harmful to carbon-based life and persists for thousands of years, as everybody knows. However, what I want to focus on in this section is not the traditional nuclear plants, but rather a very different and mostly forgotten alternative. So unlike uranium, thorium is up to four times more abundant, and it does not require extensive and environmentally destructive mining practices to extract. As it has different elemental properties from uranium, it does not require highly pressurized water for cooling, thus reducing the size and overall cost of the power plant, also making a meltdown scenario practically impossible. However, the greatest benefits are that the nuclear waste is extremely difficult to use in weapon creation, and the half-life of the spent fuel is only a few hundred years in contrast to tens or hundreds of thousands of years with uranium. So these last two issues are typically the main concerns that anti-nuclear supporters hold when advocating against nuclear-generated energy. So given these tremendous environmental, technical, and even political advantages, why aren't all nuclear reactors today based on thorium? So the answer is actually quite simple, and this goes a little bit back into history. But due to nuclear disarmament talks breaking down in 1948, and the Soviet military detonating its first atomic weapon in 1949, governments, militaries, national media, and more importantly, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission began to see nuclear reactors as machines that could churn out the ingredients necessary to produce nuclear weapons, rather than as energy production plants. So what followed should be pretty obvious. Uranium reactors were funded and built out, while thorium reactor research was discontinued and shut down because it didn't fulfill the dominant need at the time. So without this story being told, I think it's quite clear to see that it would appear that scientific advancements simply led to advanced nuclear reactors that facilitated the hydrogen bomb, nuclear weapon proliferation, nuclear waste, and now the nuclear energy production plants that we see today. So while electric vehicles and nuclear energy are interesting, what in the world do they have to do with the automation of jobs and the focus of this podcast? So my goal here was to show a more hopeful perspective. Even if I feel that the many new and emerging technologies are incredibly powerful and promising, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will be accepted and integrated. For example, AI diagnostician algorithms can already perform better than several diagnosticians combined. But because medical unions have political power, these may not be accepted. So this is the same for several technologies impacting many of the areas of society that have been talked about on this podcast. So really simply put, social forces have a large part to play in technological adoption and specifically their use in society. So this is the idea that technological progress and the subsequent social impacts aren't deterministic and that individual actions can act as a catalyst for change. So even though the two examples focused on in this episode led to less than ideal outcomes, I want to stress that our world is not fixed in having technological unemployment with its catastrophic short-term social destabilization that many think will ensue with a high degree of automation. So to summarize, I think that the best example I could find actually came from the Pew Research Center's study that I discussed last week. So, the study states that there was a single point of agreement between the 2000 technology experts surveyed on the topic of job automation, and it was that none of these potential outcomes, from the most utopian to most disutopian, are etched in stone. Although technological advancement often seems to take on a mind of its own, humans are in control of the political, social, and economic systems that will ultimately determine whether the coming wave of technological change has a positive or negative impact on jobs and employment technology is not destiny and we control the future we will inhabit so as i said at the beginning i hope that this leaves you with a little bit more of a positive impact on job automation and the future of technology uh, compared to many of the other episodes that i've talked about which might seem a little bit bleak or that there's no hope uh, and that this is kind of a determined outcome uh, for the future so thanks for listening to this week's episode if you want to support the podcast you can leave a like or a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts if you want to get in touch feel free to do so over twitter or linkedin by searching for automated podcast on the website automatedpodcast.org you can leave a comment on any of the episodes read the transcripts, and look at the sources I use in all of these episodes. There are also blog articles and additional resources and information on this topic and podcast if you are looking for more. See you next week. The Automated Podcast